You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that uh, time is quickly wrapping up. And Lord, you have just blessed this church with so many truths. So many things that um, we just feel blessed and, and sometimes, Lord, uh, sometimes it's difficult for us because we have all this truth surrounding all the time. And we just ask that, um, Lord, teach us to, to know what is important at this day and age. And um, Lord, it's not enough just to know, but teach us how to apply it to our lives. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Um, today's gonna be a talk that uh, uh, really kind of talks a little bit about Clothing, garments, something we all actually deal with in our day and age and our life, right? But this is nothing new. In fact, it's been around for an extremely long time. And as I started kind of doing some of this research, it's very interesting. I have um, two young children, nine and 11 years old. And uh, I think when my daughter came out, she was the type that I said, oh boy, she's going to give me a run for my money already. And she's already will change multiple times. And, you know, clothing is a big deal in her world. And so, um, you know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I grew up with all brothers. And, hey, clothing was even a big deal to us as well. But um, I, I learned some new things by kind of putting this presentation together. And I think there's a lot of spiritual lessons that we can draw out of our simple clothing. So I'll bring your, your, your mind back to the very, very beginning. In Genesis 3, 6 through 11, um, we have this first illustration of, of us covering ourselves, right? And, and we lost that covering. Listen to what the Bible says. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took it and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then their eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. Now, I, I always kind of had a question about this part. Do you, when you read the Bible, do you, read, do you ask questions? Like sometimes you read it and you're just like, wait, wait, how come when Eve ate that piece of fruit, she didn't realize she was naked until she went back and gave it to Adam and he ate it? You ever wondered that? Like, like why did it take for both of them to all of a sudden eat it before all of a sudden, like, why, did, why didn't she walk up to Adam and be like, whoa, 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 you're not wearing any clothes. What's going on here? Right? I mean, there's some questions that I have, like, what's going on here? So they sewed fig leaves together. They made coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the sound of God, and they were walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God from among the trees of the garden. So I want to point something out. They realize that they're naked. They decide that they need to cover themselves. They're covered, but then the result of that and having the wrong covering produced a fear in them to the point where they wanted to hide from God. I just want you to remember that point, okay? Um, listen to what Mrs. White says. The white robe of innocence was worn by our first parents when they were placed in, in, um, by God in the Holy Eden. They lived in perfect conformity to the will of God in a beautiful soft light. The light of God enshrouded the holy pair. I want to point this out that 
I think it's beautiful that she calls it the white robe of innocence. It had something to do with their character. And I want you to, I want to also point this one thing out to you. I want you to notice that we have always had a covering over us. There was always something, even to this holy pair, that Jesus was covering them even then. I want to point that out. And, but when sin entered, they severed their connection with God, that the light which had encircled them departed, naked and ashamed, they tried to supply the place of the heavenly garments sewn together by fig leaves and a covering. Now, I want to speak expressly to the women in this room because it's easier for you to understand this, even though our clothing is getting more confusing in this day and age. Do you find it interesting that we have always tried to put our clothing back on since the very beginning, yet we live in a world that constantly wants you to take it off? I want you to think about that. And because it's interesting to observe clothing and, and the trends and the fashions, and, and now it's almost like clothing is getting so minimalistic, if you, if, you, if, if, if you can be as blunt as that. And it's almost like I'm naked and I'm proud of it. No longer am I ashamed. There's a reason for that that I believe that is a spiritual lesson that we really need to digest and, and, and take a hold of. So I want you to keep these concepts in your mind because we will circle back around them in the end, but I want to give you a little context of the psychology of clothing. And maybe, um, maybe you guys, I'll enter uh, uh, some of the males into this. When you buy a piece of clothing, does anyone in the room seem to gravitate to one color? Okay, I have to actually physically force myself to not buy blue. Anybody else? And, and, and it's very interesting if I observe, I go to my closet, how many different combinations of a blue shirt do I possibly need? Yet I will gravitate towards a blue shirt. We all have these likes and these dislikes, right? And it's very interesting. I started um, observing what does clothing color say about you? Did you know that there's actually a whole psychology behind this? There's books that are written on this. And why I'm fascinated with it is color is very interesting. Did you know that um, certain colors produce certain feelings in us? Do you know what the color um, red and yellow do to you? They make you hungry. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever wondered why McDonald's, uh, Carl's Jr., well, I guess you guys don't call it Carl's Jr. on this side of the country. You call it uh, Hardee's. All of those, Burger King, you name it, red and yellow because they have found that the combination of those two colors will actually produce a physical feeling inside of you. So I find it very interesting, and this is also in, in filmmaking. In fact, there is an entire science on how to just color your films. There's moods that you can produce if they're green, if they're blue, if they're cold. Did you know there is a color combination that we like to physically see when we see a movie? Do you know what the most common two colors that you put together in a film are? They call it teal-orange. Teal and orange. The colors are opposite on the color wheel, and you often see, I mean, you can see 
major films like Transformers and you know all of the big blockbuster films, they all have this color palette of teal and orange. You guys can look this up on your own time. But color science produces a particular feeling in you. So what do you think it does in clothing? What if I went to a job, a job interview, okay? And I'm wearing this rainbow thing here on the left. What is that going to do at my job interview? And, and some of you are laughing, but let me ask you this. Does it have any bearing whatsoever on my actual physical skills? No, but do you think I would get the job? So clothing does make a bit of a difference, right? Oh, that's kind of interesting because a lot of young people will fight you on that. Doesn't matter what I wear. Really? You know, blue, the color blue, um, do you actually know what that, what, why, why a lot of people wear blue? Do you know what that actually signifies? No. No. Trust. Do you know that you actually trust somebody in blue more than a different color? Isn't that interesting? I mean, if you have a blue suit at home and you want to get a job, they say that's the best color to actually wear. Isn't that interesting? Psychologically speaking, you we see people all the time um, in certain outfits. But what if you were, um, let's say, hurt on the job and the paramedic showed up in a sweatsuit? Right? Would you be like, whoa, 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 do you know what you're doing? Even though the sweatsuit has nothing to do with his actual physical skills whatsoever. But we are accustomed to say, hey, clothing really matters, right? If you see somebody in athletic clothing, you think, wow, they must be sporty or they must be into this kind of activity. You see somebody in orange, you know, uh, you think, okay, what did you do? Uh, this particular gentleman here, Faber Byron, he wrote an entire um, book on the psychology of color, and this is what he actually came up with. Listen to this. People that like to wear red tend to gamble and take risks under red, um, or people tend to gamble and take risks under red lights. Did you know that? Do you know if you walked into a casino, they have a lot of red lights? And there's a reason for that. Isn't that interesting? There's no wonder why that's the predominant color of the choice in casino atmospheres. If you are drawn to red clothing colors, then it indicates extroversion, passion, energy, personality type that is driven to live fully. People who like red clothes also tend to be aggressive, energetic, energetic, and quick to release their emotions. Red clothing colors indicate a person who is quick in judging people and expressing his opinions. And when going to a job interview, it's best to stay away from this color. It can convey the wrong message. Isn't that interesting? Listen to what orange does. Like, or like clothing colors, if you like orange, then you're probably a social person who is well-liked and makes friends easily. The personality type which prefers orange clothes is happier in occupations which involve meeting groups of people. Thought that was kind of interesting. Yellow. Yellow clothing colors indicate superior mind that is able to concentrate well. Personality types that prefer yellow tend to have an aloof manner but are not shy. It's difficult to rattle such people, logical and consistent. They are two adjectives that go hand in hand with the personality types that prefers yellow clothing. And yellow also being a happy color, there's a reason why we draw a happy face with the color yellow. Isn't that interesting? Psychologically, we look at that, feel like those people should be fun, right? Green, 
People who like green clothing colors tend to live in good neighborhoods, have a lot of friends, and are very social. They're also environmental friendly, and they have a good sense of, of balance. Such personality types tend to party well, eat well, and live well. They are very mindful of their social standing, reputation, and financial um, standing. Blue clothing colors indicate freshness, peace, and loyalty. Sometimes conceited, this personality type, especially men, tend to be witty and sarcastic. Women who like blue clothing colors often wish to portray an air of mystery along with an intense appeal and sense of fashion. When attending a work interview, choose navy blue to show that you are in control while portraying a calm truth, confidence, and security. Purple clothing um, are used, they were used in royalty in the past. Today, they indicate a personality type, having a great love for art, creativity, and, and imagination. Such people also tend to have a deep insight. They are charming and prone to temper, being temperamental. Black. Anybody else out here just like black? Some people? Yes. I actually... Uh, I have also been drawn to the color black. Black is a good clothing color choice for an interview. It indicates authority. Experts recommend using it mainly as an accent, not uh, like in scarves, rather than using it in a, as a main color in order to not connote drama. White. This is what they found out with white. White clothing colors appeal especially for an interview, both men and women. White indicates simplicity, precision, and goodness. I think it's very interesting that they brought this out. White being something that illustrates goodness. I want to talk about this from the wedding perspective. Um, as we'll get into this a little bit later, um, I actually have wedding on my brain. Tomorrow is my 14th wedding anniversary. Thank you, thank you. And uh, it is uh, always on my mind, of course, but uh, especially at this time of the year, um, it, is a, it is a thing that I enjoy talking about a lot. So what clothing and fashion and, and those kind of things say about you actually has a lot to do with not only just your mood, but it also actually has a lot to do with your personality. Um, listen to this. Uh, this particular article from Psychologist's World said Roberts um, that did this research found that red clothes would tend to lead participants to rate subjects more favorably in terms of attractiveness when compared to other clothes. Um, this result uh, might explain a study where they found that when a waitress wore a different colored t-shirts while serving at a restaurant, men would tend to leave them higher tips when they were wearing red tops as opposed to other colors. However, the shirt color had no effect on the tips left by female customers. Isn't that interesting? That even the color of the shirt would produce an action in the person that was just leaving a tip. Now, um, I found this article very interesting by NPR. Um, they wanted to test, actually, what certain types of clothing would it have any bearing on you um, performing tasks whatsoever. So this particular study that they did, um, they wanted to see if they could ask you to do tasks and then put a medical garment on you, which would immediately make you think medical people are much more smart. Would they be smarter? Listen to this. 
We all know about how clothes affect us in ways we want. We have clothes that make us feel more powerful, a little sexy, whatever it may be. But what we wondered is how do clothes affect you in ways you cannot see? Hi, I'm Hannah Rosen. I'm Elise Spiegel. And I'm Lulu Miller, and we are... Invisibilia. We went and we talked to these scientists who had looked in very, very careful ways at the things that clothes do to us, the way that they affect us, that we are not aware of. This is our scientist man. His name is Adam Galinsky, and he is a professor at Columbia Business School. And he first got interested in all this. Do clothes affect the way that people think and behave? Because of... Um, in this episode, uh, they required Bart and Lisa and all the kids to wear these gray uniforms, and their behavior became very subdued. Ah, uh, these uniforms are a godsend. Horseplay is down 40%. Youthful exuberance has been cut in half. High spirits are at an all-time low. And he thought, wait, could there be anything to that? How does the clothes we wear um, affect our basic psychological processes and the way that we behave in the world? Specifically, he wondered if wearing a doctor's white coat could make you do better on a really complicated attention task. Which is why a couple months ago, Elise, Hannah, and I grabbed a bunch of Invisibilia listeners. There you go. <laughs> dragged them into quiet rooms at NPR and made half of them put on doctor's white coats. We were trying, as best we could, to replicate Adam's experiment. The Stroop task. You have to say the color of the text that the word is written in. Sorry, I just need to make sure I have this. The color that the word is written in. So not what the words say? Brown, but it's red. I say red. Okay. 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 So we gave everyone the same attention test that Adam gave them. What are you laughing at? This horrible little thing where you're shown the names of different colors printed in various color inks. Purple, red, green, yellow. Yellow, purple, black. Red, green, yellow. Uh, purple. Yellow, purple, black. And what Adam red, and his team red, found was that blue, the people in white green, coats, red, green, like this guy red, here, green, blue, did way better. Damn. <laughs> like way better than the people in street clothes. The people wearing the lab coat made about half as many errors, suggesting that they were definitely paying more attention. I find that kind of amazing, like half as many errors? Yeah. Yes. I, I really want to know how that works. I mean, why would it be true? Well, Adam wondered too. Was it the fabric itself? Maybe there was something about having a little weight on your shoulders that gets you to focus better. So he tested again. But this time? We described it as a painter's coat. Same exact coat, but he told people. Um, it's, a, it's a painter's coat. It's a painter's white coat. Oh, are you supposed to be filming me doing this? And? Purple, black, uh, red, green. It had green, barely any blue. effect at all. So and what we found is that it's not just the material of the clothes themselves, but what the key, key aspect is, is that symbolic association with it. While the doctor's coat symbolized to people attention, focus. <laughs> and the final thing Adam found is that if the coat was just sitting next to you, you don't get the effect. There's something about putting on the coat. Do you mind putting it on? Not at all. Um, and feeling it and being that person. Which Adam believes makes those beliefs contained in that piece of clothing carry over into you. By putting on the clothing, it essentially becomes who you are. It's a little bit about a momentary shift in identity. He has dubbed this effect Enclothed cognition. Enclothed cognition. The idea that there is a kind of magic to cloth. It can carry moods and abilities that exist outside of you 
into your bloodstream, your brain, and change you in quiet but measurable ways. So are any of you thinking spiritually? Is it interesting that you can take something, a white coat, that all they did was tell the participants, this is a lab coat. They put it on, they did 50% better. They took the same coat and they said it's a painter's coat and it made no difference. The very act of putting on something, when you understand what the significance of that garment is, makes a huge difference on you. I want you to keep that in mind. There's something else that's very interesting about clothing. So here's a test, very simple test. This gentleman right here is wearing a, what looks to be an important outfit. I get a lot of scammers at this time of the day. <laughs> so he's wearing a important outfit, but it actually says nothing. It doesn't say police. It doesn't say anything. He's literally just wearing an outfit that looks like he should be important, right? And they wanted to test if other people saw him with this outfit on and assumed in their minds that he was important, could he actually make them do some pretty interesting things? Listen to what he actually asks people to do. Would you obey this man? He's Charlie, our actor, dressed to look like he's in charge, though he's in charge of nothing except a bogus uniform. We've brought him to Edmonton in North London, to the shopping center, to find out exactly how obedient people are. Excuse me, I'm sorry, could I just stop you? You're about to pass between me and the, and the red bench. Could I just ask you to go the other side? Thanks. That's great. Oh, and just be on the apple, it'd be great. Oh, oh. Thanks very much, madam. These slabs, they keep... I couldn't just ask you to knock it in down for me. You're probably heavier than I am. Can you give it a good old jump? Yeah, actually, let me move that way. Can you just jump, please? Yeah, no, two-footed, probably, best. I couldn't just ask you to litter, could I? To what, sir? To litter. To litter? Yeah, could I, have you got anything you could possibly quickly litter? Um, do you want to, do you use that? It's probably all right. Okay. Yeah, could you just litter for me, please, sir? Just twice would be great. Kick it away, otherwise it won't. That's it, give it a kick. I couldn't ask you just to pop down your other hand, could I? Thanks, that's excellent. Could I ask you to lead with your left? Yes. Um, and just slowly, really, basically. It's a simple experiment, but amazingly, it works. Out of uniform, though, it's a different story. Oh, sir, could I just ask you to switch bags with your hands? Just, just... You couldn't just go and just touch that brick? No? But with the uniform, 70% of people follow Charlie's bizarre instructions to the letter. Oh, fine. Give it one more, actually. The wind's a bit weak. That's it. You've got my dental records here. That's proof enough that this is quality sweet cut. Bit harder, please, sir. He's in uniform. Stop the bag. So they obey. So isn't that interesting? Clothing makes a huge difference to us huge difference to us that I don't think we give it enough thought and enough credit. 
And in fact, like I try to use this illustration with young people all the time because, you know, as they go, oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, right? I can, I can wear what I want and, and it shouldn't really have a, a profound effect on people. It absolutely has a major profound effect on people. And if we think about this spiritually, as we're, we'll, we'll inch some of these examples closer and closer to home, I believe that, that, that God has a garment for us to wear. And I believe that the simple act of putting it on has a profound influence, not only on us, but those around us. You know, it used to be men... You know, they kind of had shorts to the knees. I went to school, actually, at an Adventist school growing up, and I remember there was a lady there in the office that would walk around with a ruler that if your shorts were two inches above the knee and you were too short, you were go sent home. Anybody else remember those days? Wow. I've been to school recently and just been like, <laughs> we'd have been sent home for that in a heartbeat. But my have times changed, right? Women's shorts rarely uh, shorter than, or longer than six-inch seams, right? Men's t-shirts, sleeves that almost cover the entire bicep, right? Women's, were always, they're always getting so short. Men's jeans, flattering but not so tight. This used to be the form. Women's skin-tight, form-fitting. Men's formal wear, isn't that interesting that we often, um, you know, it's funny, like you see people out in cold environments and the men have jackets on and they have shirts on and these poor little women in these like tiny little dresses, right? How cruel is that? But why do we feel like this is what society needs to be okay? You know, all of these things... Um, there is a lot of research, actually, and I want to talk about this just in, in, in the sort of um, struggle that I know that women sometimes have with wearing revealing clothing. Um, I want to show you a little bit of, of this, um, this relationship between a female's clothing and actually what people feel around them towards that female. So they did a study where they had a character that was tossing a ball between um, each other on screen. You couldn't see the two individuals. And then they would bring um, test people into it, and they would pass the ball back and forth. The person in the back is, is uh, um, waiting for the ball to be passed to them. And with the lady that is clothed at the bottom, they would pass her the ball, and then they would not pass her the ball. And, and then people really kind of felt bad that she was being left out of the game. But what they found that time again and time again, the person, if they were wearing more scantily clothed dress, the people that were being studied did not feel bad that they did not get past the ball. And that was an interesting realization to them. They felt less sympathy for that person being left out of the game simply by the way that they were dressed. Isn't that interesting? And the way that we perceive each other is, is very interesting. Now today, I don't know if you guys have seen modern rap stars wearing dresses. Have you seen this? I mean, it is mind-boggling that these rappers are wearing dresses and women's clothing. They're changing the social norm, changing what people deem as as acceptable in society, of course they want to they get noticed and they want to, to, to cause waves and stuff, but this is something that is starting to come out and it's, it's mind-boggling to me. Like, why would you wear that dress? First of all, you don't even look 
good in it, <laughs> right? I mean, you look awkward in trying to fit this like thing into it that doesn't even fit you. Why would you wear that into public? Calvin Klein is probably one of the more noticed um, clothing brands. This was a tweet from Calvin Klein, and this was a particular man that is wearing women's clothing. And I, this caught me by, by um, surprise, actually. What does it say right here? I disobey in my Calvin Kleins. And this is a uh, tweet from Calvin Klein. So this was their own tweet. And notice it says, I disobey in my hashtag, my Calvin Kleins. And it was like, why, why would him wearing females' clothing be perceived as going to disobey? Why, why, does, why does all of a sudden wearing clothing have anything to do with your character? Does that make sense? Because you see this all the time in fashion. In fact, um, this was a 501s um, commercial, and of course, obviously, they're unbuttoning the 501s, so this is very suggestive in its nature. But as I started to, to observe these major corporations that would do these campaigns, they had a particular um, commercials that always had the, the people, the young people taking their clothing off. In fact, I can't even show you the commercials because they are that bad. And it was like shocking to me that they could even put this out into public. But but this was one of the commercials here. As you can see, it's a male in a female's clothing wrapped up on the floor, and it says, if you undo the buttons, you loosen the screws, you shake off the ropes, baby, ain't nothing gonna knock you down. And that's exactly what was said in that commercial. Why is it, why is it a form of rebellion? Why is it marketed that the clothing is an act of rebellion? You know, it's interesting. This was another one of that exact same campaign that was in there. And it started dawning on me that has clothing always been a bit of an act of rebellion? Yes, fashion. In fact, the very thing that drives fashion is rebelling against the status quo, rebelling against the common thing, wearing something that you should not wear, or wearing something that you're pushing the envelope. Those are all things that are are, are in, for, in a form of rebellion. I've, I read this really interesting article as I was doing some of this research in Texas A&M University, and it was, a, it was a person that was writing a whole document that was talking about the sociology of fashion and rebellion from the 1900s on to the present. And listen to this. It says, the purpose of the study is to determine the relationship between fashion and rebellion within the social construct in its historical context as well as its current and future patterns. To identify how fashion is used in rebellion, we must first recognize how fashion was used as a form of communication and representation of the self within society. Once that connection has been made, we will demonstrate through this historical archives and scholarly texts how fashion has been used throughout times as a mean of social rebellion against the stand standardized norms, political policies, and social structures. And then we'll classify and highlight various movements of rebellion in the recent history that have used fashion as a medium of their social statements. And I found that really interesting. That here, it's like, if you look back over time, and so I started diving into, like, really historical contexts of this. 
There was, um, just to kind of go on and talk about this a little bit more, um, for one to be fully understand the relationship between sociology, fashion, and rebellion, it's first important to define what fashion is and what its significance is in, in society. Fashion as defined by Karl Marx, 1954, is a form of social hieroglyphs, meaning that a person's clothing can signify more details about that person's life. Now pause. Do you think it matters what clothing we will put on? It's interesting to me that it's an extension of who we are. It's literally a characteristic. In fact, when we put on a certain type of clothing, it can completely alter our mood, completely alter our character. This is not even discussing this from a religious standpoint. It's simply discussing it from a sociological standpoint. If you look at Britannica, um, I just quickly uh, did an article on, on people in the past in history that have rebelled using forms of fashion. And Joan of Arc, obviously, um, being one of the most notorious people, do you know that she actually just put on male's clothing and she was taken into custody by the bishop simply for wearing male's clothing? That was socially unacceptable in that day and age. And in fact, um, she did it purposefully for a, a reason to rebel against the system. Um, there's a lot of different uh, examples of this. Uh, it's not only been for a reason of war or to defend the homes that women have adopted men's clothing. The British historian Henry Knighton complained that in, in 1348, about 40 to 50 English ladies were arriving to tournaments in male's dress and armor to parade at the intervals, and so that they might be able to share in the glory of the tournament. And, and um, Knighton claimed that God was so incensed by this behavior that he sent a thunderstorm to drive the women indoors. Isn't that kind of funny? But clothing can be an extension of our rebellion, our self-proclamation um, of, no, we're not going to do what you're saying. We're going we're gonna to do it differently. We're not going to abide by the society's rules. We're going we're gonna to change that. And if you see in fashion today, you see it all the time. Fashion magazines, all you got to do is type the word rebel and fashion, and you will see a, a plethora of things pop up. So the reason I wanted to share that with you, because I believe that the Bible is very clear about rebellion. In fact, it says rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as the iniquity and, and idolatry. We're not called to be rebellious in nature. You know, when Adam and Eve lost their garment and they, they decided to make fig leaves, it's interesting that it is, it is a symbol of our own trying to cover ourselves in our own strength. And that fig leaf has, has transferred through time and has been that similar um, example. For those that, uh, you know, wonder how much do we actually get impacted by watching other people? How is it possible that we see a celebrity wear a particular pair of jeans and all of a sudden, months later, everybody's wearing those pairs of jeans? You ever notice that? We are observing the way that other people are in this world and then all of a sudden those trends transfer down to us. There's a documentary that's called Art and Copy. I shared this the other day. 
And it really goes over a bunch of, of people in the advertising industry. And they talk about these major, major advertisements that uh, we all have known. Like Nike, they had an interview in there of, of some of the guys that, that um, were around when, when Nike came up with the Just Do It. Do any of you know where that came from? They were actually going to execute somebody and they had them up on the firing squad and the person that was going to get executed just said, go ahead and just do it. And somebody was watching that, that, that was part of, of the whole Nike campaign or read about that and said, hey, that would be a great slogan for our company. Isn't that interesting? But anyway, this particular documentary, it really shows the impact of why we watch, we copy, and we repeat what we see. And, um, and how this actually influences our world. But here's a couple of, uh, of, of the ones that were um, in charge of making the, um, you know how it says, I love New York, and it has a high, I heart New York? These are some of the people that came up with that concept, and, and listen to what they say. Great advertising makes food taste better, it makes cars run better, it, 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 it changes the perception of everything. I think what you can do is manufacture any feeling you want to manufacture. So you can manufacture any feeling that you want to manufacture, and they can put these concepts out there, and they can shape people's characters literally by these campaigns that they've done. And I think that's very fascinating to me, especially when you think of all of the um, fashion that is pushed on our world. You know, Mrs. White had a lot to say about not following the fashion trends of the world, right? Not being so involved in, in every little which way that it does. Um, there's a lot of, of information out there that talks about, you know, the more we see advertisements, the more we are influenced by the things that the world tries to push on us. Harvard actually um, did a whole article on this. The more actually unhappy we are. It doesn't make us happy. The more that we keep trying to keep up with the way the world is pushing all these things on us, the more that we literally are unhappy. This university, um, at the University of Warswick's Andrew Oswald and his team compared the survey data of life satisfaction of more than 900,000 citizens in 20, 000, or 27 European countries from 1980 to 2011. And this data um, on annual advertising spending and the nations that, that were in the same period, the researchers found that there was an inverse connection between the two. The higher the country's ad spend was in a year, the less satisfied its citizens became. Because we're constantly trying to put on something to change our characters, to change our moods, and the data is in the, is in the proof. The proof is in the data. It's not making us happy. If you want to make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your own tool upon it, you profane it. You shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. I want to share how many times our nakedness comes up in the Bible again and again and again. What is the Bible trying to show us with constantly revealing that we need something to cover our nakedness? He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white remnant, and I will, I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in fire, that thou mayest be rich, and the white remnant, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, 
and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou may seest. The Bible describes that those people in the very end are going to be clothed with something. They're going to have a garment on them. That garment will cover our imperfections, our nakedness. Job here describing, I will put on righteousness, and it has clothed me. My judgment was as a robe and a diadem. I hope that you're beginning to kind of see a trend that this covering that we're supposed to be putting on is the robe of righteousness. You'll see it again and again and again. And this robe is nothing that we've made. This is nothing that we can put in the loom. This is, the, this is literally made in the loom of heaven. It is putting on the robe of Christ over us. The reason I say that is because I want to share something with you. I see a lot of parallels. And there are some things that, that I see in our modern world that are such amazing illustrations of this idea of God wanting us to be righteous. It's the biggest thing that I think drives me to really try and illustrate to people, why is it that we're so caught up watching unfilthy, unholy, I mean, filthy things, unholy things, playing video games that we do nothing but run around and shoot and kill people? Why do our young people, why are we drawn to this when I see over and over and over again, God is wanting to put his robe of righteousness around us? Listen to what the Bible says in Isaiah 61:10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decketh himself with the ornaments and a bride adorneth herself with jewels. You know, one of my favorite sermons to preach really deals with the wedding. And in fact, every every Anybody that gives sermons, they always seem to have one rant and rave, right? They have one thing that they constantly like to, to gravitate to, and the one thing that they like to illustrate. And I think for me, if I could just pick one sermon and only deliver one sermon, it would be a sermon about the wedding over and over and over again. How many of you have ever been to a wedding? So I want you to recognize this. I hope that after I share a little bit of this with you, it will change your perception and you will never ever see a wedding the same ever again because that's exactly what this did for me. Listen to this. As I beheld and lo, a great multitude that no man could number of all nations, kindreds, tongues, people before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palms in their hands, none, and one of the elders answered, saying, Who are these that are arrayed in white robes, and whence did they come? And I said, Sir, you know. And he said unto me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white uh, in the blood of the Lamb. This idea of the, the wedding garment is what I want to like bring your attention to. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And her, to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he said unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said unto me, These are the true saints of God. 
So I want to share something with you that's an illustration that God has given to us since the beginning of time. He instituted the idea of marriage, and it's an illustration for our relationship with him. In the Jewish culture, marriage really meant two things, sanctification and dedication. So in the Jewish culture, um, sanctification meant that it was not just a, a social arrangement or a contractual agreement, but actually a bonding, a divine precept. A dedication that, that the two would uh, have an exclusive relationship, the, and, and the bride and the groom, they would love each other to the extent that the two souls would become one body. That's what it meant in the Jewish mind. You know, Malachi 3.14 says, it's useless to serve God. What does it profit if we keep his ordinances as we walk after mourners after the Lord of hosts? If you think of our relationship with God in a marriage context and you say, hey, God's asking us to do certain things. He's asking us to be righteous, to follow after things that are holy, to not be involved in evil in this world, to turn our eyes from evil. That's the, those are concepts the Bible constantly refers to. But if you apply that to a marriage, if my wife constantly had to, to be like, you know, I want you to do this and this and this for me, what if I walked around and I said, I don't want to do that? I, why do I have to do the dishes? Why do I have to rub my wife's feet after a whole day of her going to work and they hurt her? Why would I want to do that, right? If I, if I constantly walked around like, oh, I don't want to do this or that for my wife, how far do you think my marriage is going to go? In fact, we do things for our spouses because we love them, right? Why is it different with God? When God asks us to, to hunger and thirst after righteousness, why do we drag our feet and go, all you're trying to do is take away my fun? Does that make sense? Isaiah 54, 5 says, For thy maker is thy husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. For the God of the whole earth he shall be called. The Bible refers to our relationship with God as a husband and wife, right? That's how, how the Bible refers to this relationship. Well, look at this. In Abraham, when he told um, his servant to go out and find a bride for his son Isaac, I want to show you a parallel here that is from the wedding ceremony of the old ancient traditions that, that were involved in, in, in finding a bride back in the, in the Israelite um, um, day and age and our Christian walk today. Remember, Abraham told his servant, go to the land of my people and find a bride. And uh, his servant said, well, what if I find this bride for Isaac and she doesn't want to come? We call this an arranged marriage. But remember what Abraham said. She still has a choice. Don't force her. If she doesn't want to come, that's fine. So as, as this is an illustration, I want you to read this verse here in Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. According as he hath chosen us, us in him before the foundation of the world, we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And having predestined us to the adoption of his children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to his goodwill and pleasure. Did you know that we were predestined, we were literally in a prearranged marriage before the foundation of the world? Did you know that? But just like in the case of Abraham's servant, you have a choice. Do you want to be involved in this marriage relationship with your maker or no? So what happened to Abraham is almost a parallel of what's happening with us. Listen to this. 
Second, the son or the matchmaker would travel to the home and they would negotiate a price. They would literally say, I'm taking your daughter out of your home. I'm willing to pay this much to bring her to my son and so that they can marry. I want you to keep this in mind, that its price would be negotiated. Listen to what the Bible talks about you and I. In Exodus 20, verse 2, it says, I am the Lord thy God, which has brought thee out of the, out of, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. 1 Corinthians 6, 12, 20 says, For you were bought with a price. Did you know that a price was negotiated for you to be in a relationship with Jesus? What was happening in the Jewish culture was exactly what we are dealing with in our relationship with God. Listen to this. What would happen when this price was negotiated there was a marriage contract that was given to the bride. And what this marriage contract would say would be like whatever he wanted that bride to be. If he wanted that bride to wake up in the morning and make blueberry pancakes, he wrote it in this marriage contract and that marriage contract was then handed to the bride-to-be and she would read the contract and see if she could be the woman that this person was asking her to be. They called it a ketubah and it was a marriage covenant contract. Do you know what God gave us? Interesting. He gave us something right here. Exodus 34, 28, it says that there with the Lord, they were, um, Moses was with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. He didn't eat bread. He didn't drink water. He wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. In fact, the Bible also uses this this wording in Deuteronomy 4.13 that says, and he declared unto him his covenant, which he commanded you to perform even the Ten Commandments. Did you know that this is a marriage contract for you and I? Did you know as the bride of Christ, we are to read this ketubah right here and understand what is this bride that God is asking us to be? He's asking us to be hungering and thirsting After righteousness, are we going to be that bride that he's asking for? It's a parallel to our Christian walk. When they would sit there and they would negotiate this marriage contract, the bride would then go back and she would say, yes, I will be the bride that you're asking me to be. And she would then sit there and they would exchange their vows. And when they would exchange their vows and the price was reached, they would literally take a cup of grape juice. And when they would say, I will be the bride that you're asking me to be. And the man would say, I will be the husband that you're asking me to be. Both of them would drink the grape juice, which means that they were in a relationship and at that point they were as good as married they called it betrothed you know why i find that interesting because when you read the bible and you read what it says in matthew 26 27 through 29 it says and he took the cup and when he had given thanks unto them saying drink of it all of you this is the blood of my covenant this is the blood of my marriage contract with you and me and when he held it up and he said um Drink of it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant. It is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. I will not drink of this or the fruit of it until the day I drink of it with you anew in my Father's kingdom. Did you know that Jesus was literally going through the steps to marry himself to the human race? Any one of these people that were a part of this scene would have immediately recognized it, that this is marriage language. 
When Jesus was sitting there in the garden of Gethsemane and he's crying out to God and he says, Father, if thou will be willing, will you remove this cup from me? We don't speak like that in today's language. So to us, this doesn't make as much concept or as much um, sense as it would to someone in the Jewish culture that literally if they would have heard this right here, what Jesus was asking was there, is there a way for me to be married to the human race not going through this experience. This is marriage language. That's why when Mary was coming up with a baby, they were as good as married. At this point, they had actually gone through this experience together. And so it broke Joseph's heart when she came up pregnant because he knew he hadn't consummated the wedding yet. But here in today's day and age, why I told you I wanted to talk about this wedding experience is because you see, why do we get married in a white dress? Why the white dress? Why don't we get married in blue or black or anything else? If you go to a wedding, it doesn't matter if you believe in God or not, that wedding dress symbolizes the righteousness of the saints. 2 Corinthians 11.2 says, For I am jealous for a jealousy of God himself. I have engaged you as a pure bride. Revelation 19.7-8 says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready, and her, to her was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for, the right, for this, is the li- this is the righteousness of the saints." You see, brothers and sisters, you can look through the example of the Bible since the very beginning, and it's always been the same. God is desiring for us to have his righteousness. Why am I sharing this with you? Why does it matter our clothing? Because you see, the Bible talks about in Matthew 22, 1 through 14, it talks about a guy who shows up He's invited to a wedding. He wants to come to a wedding. A wedding garment is given to everybody that comes to this wedding. And here this guy says, you know what? I don't want to wear that wedding dress. Remember what I told you about clothing as a form of of rebellion? I don't want to do what everybody else does. I want to wear what I want to wear. Do you know historically why kings often gave um, wedding garments to everybody in the room? Do you know what actually the historical reason for that it was? He wanted everyone to be on an equal playing field. Because clothing is such a status in our world. The different robes that you wear show you a different status and everybody's at this different level. And what God was doing in his providence and making this part of of this scene is literally just saying, we're all on the same playing field. And here this person comes up and he says, I don't want to wear what you're giving me. I want to wear what I'm giving me. An act of rebellion An act of literally saying, I don't care about the clothing that you are providing for me. I want to read to you what it says in Christ's Object Lessons, page 311. By his perfect obedience, he has made it possible for every human being to obey God's commandments. That's a solemn statement right there. By putting on his character... By putting on his robe, he's made it possible. Just like the example of the people putting on the doctor's robe, it immediately had a profound effect upon their ability to do that task. Brothers and sisters, if you put on the robe of Christ, 
he's made a way for us to be able to keep his Ten Commandments. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. His will is merged with his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garments of righteousness. The reason I'm mentioning this to you, because I find it interesting that we still in this day and age, we say, I understand the truths of the Bible. I sit in church. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe in what the pastor is saying. I believe all these spiritual truths, but yet we can all take a serious look at our lives and say then, why am I still doing X, Y, or Z? Why do I not have a problem watching this particular type of entertainment television? Why do I not have a problem playing this type of video game? Listen to what this says on page 314. It is not enough for us to believe that Jesus is not an imposter and that the religion of the Bible is no cunning devised fable. We may believe that the name of Jesus is the only name under heaven whereby man must be saved, yet we may not through faith make him our personal savior. It is not enough for us to believe in the theory of truth. It is not enough for us to make a profession of faith in Christ and have our names registered upon the church's roll. He that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him and he in him. And hereby we know that he abides in us by the spirit which he hath given us. Hereby we doth know that we know him if we keep his commandments. You see, If Jesus did it, what he's offering to you and I is not for you to be able to do it in your own strength. He's simply saying, put on my garment. Put on my righteousness. It will have a profound effect upon your walk with him. If you find yourself drawn to evil, drawn to things that you know you shouldn't be drawn to, are you daily waking up saying, Lord, clothe me with your garments of righteousness. Help me change my views, my tastes, my desires into what your desires are. That's what clothing can do for us. Christ's Object Lessons, page 319, says, In such an hour, as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they should see his shame. I believe that our Savior is coming right around the corner. We don't have time to be meddling in the sinfulness and the garbage of this world. I believe that it is time that we make a stand. I don't need that in my life. I don't want that over here. I just want Jesus. I hope and pray that that is your desire as well. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.